Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and I'm really excited today to be talking to someone whose work I've admired for many years and um, whom I've met here and there, but I think this will probably be the longest conversation that we've ever, um, the single longest conversation that we've ever had. I hope the first of many such, um, though not 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 recorded. <laughs> that would be terrible if all our conversations were recorded. My guest today is Oren Eisenberg. Um, and um, I'll tell you lots more about Oren in a minute. But um, first, I wanted to let everyone know that the poem that Oren has chosen for our conversation today is a poem by Alan Grossman. And it's called The Life and Death Kisses. Um, I will, as always, make um, the poem available to you via a link in the episode notes. So you'll be able to look at it as we um, um, discuss it um, and as Oren reads it, which he'll do, um, I hope, for us in a few minutes. Um, so uh, so look for that link. Look also, um, of course, though, I've become somewhat laggard about getting these out in a timely way. I w- there will be, I promise there will be a newsletter that comes out with the episode as well. And that'll have um, not just the text of the poem, but other links and um, information about Oren's work and about Grossman and some thoughts that I've had about the episode um, once we've had this conversation. Um Oren Eisenberg is an associate professor of English at the University of California at Irvine, and he um, so he's joining joining us now from California, from the state where I come from, the state that I miss. Um, he's the author of a monograph called "Being Numerous: Poetry in the Ground of Social Life," which was published by Princeton University Press in 2012, and is a really great book. Um, is I think a model for um, for the um, for poetry monographs. Um, he's completing another book, which sounds very exciting. It's a book called How to Know Everything. Now, there's a title for you. Um, and uh, at least as I have it, there's no subtitle there, which I also enjoy. You know, exactly. Yeah. It, it it is what it is, right? It's telling you everything you need to know right there. That book, Oren tells me, is about the philosophical significance of poetry's engagement with quote. Uh, uh, ordinary, unquote, mental actions, things like believing or desiring or perceiving, remembering, intending. Um, as I enumerate those things that this um, new book seems to be about, it strikes me, having read the poem uh, a few times now that, uh, that Oren has chosen for today's conversation, that some of those things might come up, might well come up in our in our conversation today. Um, Oren's teaching at Irvine and um, at his previous stops um, has had a kind of breathtakingly wide span. So Oren is interested in teaching um, poetry, um, not in a way that is confined to any particular period, um, though his research seems pretty well grounded in um, 20th century and 21st century poetry and poetics, his teaching spans the long history of poetry from the Iliad to, as Oren um, charmingly says, uh, the poem someone is working on right now. Um, so right now, even as I say it, even as, even as um, you um, have the good luck to be in Oren's um, teaching uh, within, within, um, within hearing of Oren's teaching voice, um, you'll hear that kind of interest in the in the very contemporary um, art of poetry. 
his his essays on poetry and poetics and on poets that range from Shakespeare to Susan Howe have appeared in journals and collections like Critical Inquiry and PMLA, Modernism Modernity, Modern Philology, Lana Turner, and Nonsite, nonsite.org, where um, Oren is poetry editor, um, in addition to having been a contributor. Um, he studied at Johns Hopkins. That's where he got his PhD. And um, and that is something I think we'll talk about more perhaps in, in, in a minute or two. And before getting to Irvine, Oren taught at Harvard and Chicago, um, at the University of Chicago. So, you know, I was, um, I, I've had a copy of Being Numerous, I think, just about since it came out. Uh, it's, it's, it's a book that I've, um, I've underlined all over and have thought lots about. Um, it, is, um, it has a pleasingly kind of ambitious um, project in mind. What Oren is interested in is in the, as I take it, um, is in the, the, um, the project of poetry, which is to reground, in his words, the concept and value of the person. So not thinking only about poetry as an aesthetic art or thinking about um, poems as literary objects, but in taking seriously poetry's claims to define and ground the person. I want to read just a couple of very brief moments to you that will put some um, some meat on that bone, as it were, and um, help you see what is so um, refreshing and exciting about Oren's approach in the book. He, um, he says um, early in the introduction to the book that um, that the um, the accounts of personhood. Um, uh, sorry, um, the accounts of personhood that um, he's interested in. Um, let me just find the the line here. Uh, he says, "When we we are taking the art of um, sorry, when we describe a poem as having a speaker. Yes, this was the passage I was looking for. When we describe a poem as having a speaker." or as giving voice to a person, and both the word speaker and the word voice are in quotation marks. These are ways that we've, are almost reflexively taught to think about what poems are doing with respect to personhood. We are not assuming anything about what a person is. Rather, Oren says, we are taking the artifice of voice in the poem to offer something like a model or theory of the person, or even a pedagogy of personhood. Um, he says, moreover, um, that though, though this is something poems do, poems and the poets that Oren is most interested in are aware of the kinds of limitations that poems have in realizing that project. So that the, the poems that Oren takes up in the book and those poets, um, the Poets in the book include people like George Oppen, um, uh, William Butler Yeats. Uh, there's a section here on language poetry. There's a beautiful um, reading at the end of the book on a poem that has meant a lot to me, A.R. Ammons's uh, Tape for the Turn of the Year. 
Um, these are poets who are uh, themselves uneasy about poetry's um, claims to um, describe or um, um, record uh, the experience of what it is to be a person. And um, I've, one of the things I find most um, valuable in Oren's work is the seriousness with which he takes the claims that poetry seems to make, I want to say about, but about seems like it's too limiting a preposition here, the claims poetry makes on life, um, for life, in life. Um, Oren is thinking very carefully in the book about those claims and what those claims have to do, not just with what, in a kind of abstract sense, we might take a person to be, but on the ways in which people relate to each other in social lives and in political formations, in um, in in um, models of belonging that um, in the 20th century, in the period that the book mostly covers, um, those formations have obviously, um, were obviously, I, I speak sometimes as though we're still in the 20th century, um, were obviously fraught and violent and um, and often did not go well. Uh, Oren is writing about poetry in a way that seems to be aware of the stakes of its claims on personhood. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so pleased to have him on this um, podcast Oren Eisenberg, welcome to Close Readings. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you, and and thank you for that. That was really <clears throat> nice to hear. Um, oh, well, um, thank you for your work, um, and I really do want to thank you for coming on the the podcast. Um, I invited you, um, as I invite all my guests, to to think of the poem that they want to talk about. And um, when you told me that maybe Grossman was a poet, Alan Grossman was a poet that you wanted to discuss on the podcast, I thought, oh, that's wonderful. And I thought so for a couple of reasons. One is, well, I admire Grossman, though I confess I don't know his poetry as well as I should, I think. Um, I, like maybe others in our field, um, know and really treasure his Summa Lyrica, this um, a, a book of um, poetic speculations and sort of um, speculative poetic theory. Um, it's in some ways a collection of aphorisms, but it's more than that too. They build on each other in, in really moving and um, trenchant ways. Um, so I was excited to learn more about Grossman from you, but then I was also excited in part because I, I take it that um, Alan Grossman is not just someone you've read, but is someone you knew and studied with. And I wonder if for the benefit of our listeners who might not know much about Grossman at all, if you might give us a bit of context about this poet. And um, I, I, I guess I have in mind both the, the kind of context that um, uh, might be useful um, in placing him in a kind of intellectual tradition or poetic tradition in, in 20th century poetry um, or poetry more broadly. But then also if you'd be willing to say a word or two about who the Alan Grossman whom you knew was, like what was he like as a teacher, um, what... Um, in what sense, when you read his work, are you thinking also about the person whom you knew personally? 
Right. So, yeah, that's uh, it's a great question. I, you know, I knew the 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 first part of the question was coming. The the part about situating Grossman in in twentieth century poetry, um, and somehow knowing that did not prepare me really uh, to give an, a satisfactory answer to it. Um, but I think there are reasons why it's hard to answer that in in a satisfactory way. And I guess. I will get to the second part of the question about uh, what what Grossman has to do with me or what I have to do with him. Yeah. So, um, Alan Grossman was born in 1932, um, which is the same year that Sylvia Plath was born. It's uh, funny. That was my first thought. <laughs> right. Um, it's four years or so after John Ashbery was born. It's a couple years before... Amiri Baraka was born. Um, these are all poets who mm-hmm. might represent something like knowable urgencies within the poetic world, right? We could use mm. each or any of those poets to describe positions uh, within 20th century poetry. Plath right. has an intense interest in the particulars of the biographical person, and we can think of other poets who mm-hmm. belong to that uh, loose school. Uh, Baraka has a ferocious engagement with contemporary politics, racial and right. otherwise, right? And we can right. see that as creating a kind of center of, um, or occupying a center of poetic activity. Uh, Ashbury is a figure for a kind of experimental or even avant-garde poetry invested in doing new things with language. Um, mm-hmm. And Alan Grossman doesn't sound like any of them. Um, There's a way in which he is sweet generous. There's a way in which he's a kind of anachronism. Um, Mm. And I guess by that, I I mean something like the the scale of his ambition for art derives from an earlier generation. Um, It Mm. derives from the modernists, um, maybe most particularly or directly from Yeats, uh, the poet on whom Grossman wrote uh, his PhD dissertation. Uh-huh. Um, um, for the high modernists, art was a kind of wisdom literature um, or uh, a way to plumb orders of understanding that aspired to be total, uh-huh. that could get a grasp on the whole. Um, and through the whole, the biographical, the political, the aesthetic. Um, but, um, but the ambition to totality uh, is something that sets him apart, I think, yeah. from other poets of his generation. Well, it strikes me, and just, I, I, Oren, I want to hear the rest of this account, but yeah. it, it just strikes me that of the poets you listed, all in their own ways, that is the poets who were born, you know, in a year or two after, within a couple of years of him, all in their own way, they they might have had some, well, they did have some exposure to the kind of totalizing ambition of the poetry you're describing, but all in in the narratives we have in mind of their careers, there comes a moment for almost all of them early, typically, where there's a kind of skeptical break from that kind of ambition and a kind of embarrassment about it or something like that. I don't know. Um, so it really is striking to me how um, the Grossman you're describing for us departs from his contemporaries in this way. 
Yeah, and I would say, um, and maybe this is getting a little ahead of ourselves, but but um, there's a lot of skepticism, but no break. Um, uh. Right, that that this is a, a kind of skeptical, a fully skeptical, fully invested. Modernism. Yeah, um, that's a lovely, lovely way to think of it. Okay, so go on. Yeah, I suppose a couple of other things to say um, is that although he started publishing poetry as a young gish man in the late 50s and, and early 60s. Right. The first book in which he really starts to sound like himself was The Woman on the Bridge Over the Chicago River, which yeah. came out in 1979. So he was close to 50 years old. Yeah. Um, so his most distinctive poetry really is the poetry of someone who's been around for a while and yeah. learned a lot, right? So who, in a sense, doesn't belong to the generation into which he was born because yeah. he started writing after schooling himself out of it or something like that. Um, oh, say more uh, about that, schooling himself out of it. Well, so when you say, for example, that you your engagement with Grossman comes through the Summa Lyrica, yeah. um, I think that you're not alone. You, right. he, he is much more fully known as a teacher uh, than he is as a poet. Um, those two things for him go completely hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the the way in which he has exerted force on other thinkers, on other poets, um, is largely through his teaching. He taught uh, all that time when he wasn't writing or publishing in any event books, um, he was teaching uh, at Brandeis University, where he taught for something like 30 years. Yeah. And he was a, by all accounts, a completely legendary teacher there. And what he was teaching was uh, the core sequence in the humanities that extended from the very beginning of recorded text uh, up up until, um, well, I suppose up, in, up through modernism, really. Right. Um, right. Uh, and so... That for him was his school as much as going to school in poetry. He was going to school in the tradition of of what has been thought and said mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in and, and somewhat beyond the West. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it is through a, a kind of complete immersion uh, in mm -hmm. that that his poetry uh, arises um, and and is legible uh, and really in a certain sense only legible uh, mm -hmm. if you're if you're willing to to submit yourself uh, mm -hmm. to those to the uh, to those obligations the obligation to know those things um, so we'll have to talk a little bit I think about what what's entailed in that obligation yeah absolutely um, great so 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 that, so yeah, the, this poem right. yeah just to say right. a couple other things um right. and bend toward the question that you the second part of the question that you asked right. me right so th this poem comes from a collection called the ether dome which came out in 1991 he was almost 60 years old right. which was also the year in which i met him um ah. in, which was my first year of graduate school i i met him on the page somewhat earlier um when <laughs> i as a callow undergraduate, uh, read an essay uh, called On the Management of Absolute Empowerment, Nuclear Violence, the Institutions of Holiness, and the Structures of Poetry uh -huh. um, and by Alan Grossman right. in the pages <laughs> of a literary magazine, um, and was 
completely astonished and bowled over and transformed and wrote a letter to the magazine in the hopes of it reaching him. I don't think it ever did because uh-huh. years later when I asked him if it had, he <laughs> maybe kindly professed a complete um, right, right. you know, lack of knowledge about uh, any such thing. Um, but I went to graduate school to work with him. Um, yeah. That is, he was the reason why I went to Johns Hopkins uh, right. and um, it was to uh, to understand what was going on uh, in that essay, uh, uh-huh. and to understand what I thought uh, were the very urgent questions it asked about what our ways of making things, what our ways of making culture might have to do with the preservation of life, human life, against its own capacities for destruction. Um, hmm. Right, so the 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 idea mm-hmm. um, of the essay was that we had made nuclear violence right. as an artifact of culture, um, and that in a certain sense only we could defend against the absolute erasure of not just some minds or many minds, but all minds, um, uh, and the imperative to preserve not lives. Um, but the accounts of value that would lead to the preservation of lives that would uh, short circuit our capacity for total violence was the urgent question uh, that one had to wrestle with. Um, And I I suppose on some level, I still think that's so. Um, And, and so, and, well, I have two very different questions. The first is I take it that for Grossman in that essay and just more broadly speaking, Poetry is an, was an essential part of that project of uh, uh, that that um, that that project of articulating a kind of appropriately calibrated valuing of yes, poetry is of the one human. is yeah. one of the places where both the impulse to preserve mm-hmm. is lodged, but also a complete open-eyed confrontation with the with the fact that um those same impulses are the ones that give rise to the capacity and the imperative to violence right right so my other question quite different was what can you give us just a quick sense or I don't know how one does this adequately so i'm glad i'm the one asking the question and not having to answer it yeah (laughs) what what was it like to be in a classroom with him? I mean, you refer to the, the stories of him at, at Brandeis as having been a, a legendary teacher. Um, you you caught him somewhat later in his career, of course, but um, and and maybe the classroom wasn't the crucial space for you to receive his teaching, but perhaps it was his office or some other space where you got a different kind of. Um, experience with them. Um, what was it like to be in a room with him? I guess I'd, I'd want to know. Yeah. In terms of the space of, of instruction, it was sort of all of the above, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, it, the, the fact that I was also someone who could sit in his office didn't mean that the office replaced the classroom as mm-hmm. the real site of instruction. Um, but how to answer that question? I, I think that most people who knew Alan or who had met him would begin with his voice. 
mm-hmm. um, which I will not try to do. Although, <laughs> um, you know, every one of his students, there's a sort of cottage industry in trying to do the voice of, of Alan Grossman. But um, he spoke in this very large, oracular, perfected sentences um, uh, in a just a, a kind of inhumanly um, prophetic voice. Yeah. Um, and he spoke that way, at least as far as I think his students could tell all the time. <laughs> um, there was no other register, right? So right. you'd be sitting and eating a hamburger with him on which you would <laughs> pour just massive amounts of salt. And you would be having a conversation in that uh, register. With uh-huh. him. There, there was no small talk. There was no yeah, um, uh, chit chat. Um, it was. It all really mattered to him. One gets yeah. that sense that yeah. that that it was not BS. The 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 urgency in the in the writing about poetry. Yeah. That's right. Um, and that sense again, right or wrong, true or false, complete or partial, mm-hmm. that there was no other scale on which he lived life. Yeah. Um, was what was available to his students, um, and it ah. was, uh, and it was powerful. It was right. it was intimidating um, yeah. because one often felt like one was preoccupied by trivial things um, yeah, that right. for which he had no time, um, uh-huh. and just which did not um, uh, affect him. Um, uh-huh. But uh, but it was also elevating. Um, hmm. t- uh, ennobling, I think, to mm-hmm. to be asked to match it or to try, um, yeah. right? To to enter that conversation, conversation that that space of seriousness, um, yeah. And um, and as and so those, that was a very important um, experience for me, um, yeah. To really. to aspire to to sometimes and maybe not infrequently fall short of, uh-huh. um, uh, or to, to measure other ways of being against, um, yeah. To, yeah, to see, to see what value could be found in them that yeah. I didn't did that. I didn't know how to value. Um, huh. um, well, that's a lovely, um, that's a lovely tribute in a way. I think, I mean, I know this it did not. I, I did not have the same kind of relationship that you're describing now with the the poet I'm about to name. But I studied a bit with John Hollander mm. when I was a student in um, college, mostly. And I remember when he died, what I wished I could have access to again was his voice. Yeah, you know, the way of talking, quite apart from anything he might have been saying. Um, yeah. And, um, and, and I remember going to a memorial service given for him, which gathered together many, many former students, almost all of whom were older than me. Um, and hearing them talk about him, I, I, I realized, oh, it, it sort of is true that that thing that Auden says about Yeats, you know, um, the words of a dead man are modified in the guts of the living, that sort of yeah. thing, you know, like the, it seemed still to that, that voice seemed to be populating the room, seemed to be filling the room in some sense. I remember feeling a great worry, like, oh, there are all these brilliant things he'd said in class and they're gone now, you know, 
Um, and I do think in some sense they were simply kind of diffused in, into the kind of network of teaching that he um, created. Um, yeah. And it sounds like something very powerful in, in a similar kind of spirit as at work for you as a, as a teacher and reader of poetry um, with respect to Alan Grossman. Um, well, Oren, I don't want more time to go by without our um, attending to the poem that you've chosen yes, for us, absolutely. which is so, it's such a strange and interesting and beautiful poem um, and our listeners should hear it. So, um, so uh, would you please be so kind as to read the poem for us? Absolutely. Um, maybe just a word before I do about, yes, about voice because, yeah. um, because it's a hard poem to read. Um, reading any poem aloud is kind of a tricky business um, or it should be a kind of a taxing business. So when you take a poem into your mouth as your own speech, um, you're being asked to entertain as a function of your own utterance, uh, a certain experimental attitude toward what being a person is. So, you know, one way to say that is to ask yourself, well, what, what could even in theory be the situation in which saying these things that I'm about to say seems like the <laughs> right thing to say mm -hmm. or a plausible thing to say. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we could understand that in, in dramatistic terms, right? What kind of person would say these things in this order? I think maybe right. someone like uh, Stephanie Burt spoke really movingly about the, the player piano in, in something like dramatistic terms, right? She's looking in the right. mirror. She's addressing herself as an other. She's being kind to herself so that actions or mental actions or linguistic actions take place in that poem on a plausible human scale, right? They might be like mine or they might not be like mine, but they're in any event of the same order as mine yeah. and being unlike mine, but of the same order as mine is an injunction to a kind of sympathy. We have to think about it differently when the words and their order are words for which there is no plausible life-size situation to which they could possibly be appropriate. Yes. Um, not, and I not all poems, in other words, sound like dramatic monologues. Exactly. Right. And, and I think this is very much a poem like that. Um, and so um, we're being asked to think about or enact or think about by means of enactment. Yeah. Um, what would a person have to be? in order to know this thing or to want this thing or to think this thing or to say this thing. Yeah. Um, and that's what I mean by a theoretical attitude toward what a person is. We have to be open um, through speaking to being something other than what we are. Um, and that's why um, it's hard to read this poem, but I'm going to try. <laughs> Thank you. It has an epigraph. The epigraph is Ibant Obscuri. I think we'll have to talk about that. Yeah. Um, but uh, the poem is called The Life and Death Kisses. The chroniclers ceased. They ceased until I arose. Out of the infinite unborn, one of the born who lived. And out of the number of all who have lived and died, one of those yet alive. And among all who are yet alive, one of us, not in the greatest pain, not demented, not buried and awaiting rescue without hope under a cruel weight, and not mourning inconsolable losses night after night, or enraged by the treachery of women, or subjected, not for this moment, thank God, by the evil power of Jay, 
arose in truth because it was time, punctually, at three in the afternoon, from where I was sitting without thought on an obdurate, bright bench of varnished rattan in the last car of a train, leaning and slowing as on a curve beside a honey-blonde woman of indeterminate age whose eyes were strange. Amidst the blandness of air and the thin light of destination. It was in the middle western state of X, land of lakes, somewhere on the western unbuilt limb of the central city, where lordly factories and highways and nursing homes were transparent with hesitation between then and now in sunlight whiter than it should be. Because the foul windows of the old train were crowded with papery faces, like bleached leaves fall into the bottom of an empty pool, one upon the other, or like ocean waves blown down white by the silent hurricane, waves breaking out of sight of land, unsurvivable by ships. Human beings with the faces of leaves or fallen water. Near at hand, the faces that can appear, and behind them also the ones that cannot appear in their multitudes, white faces receding into the whiteness of the light and the flat landscape of the great plains of the dream. I rose to get down, for the train had stopped and it was leaning in the light, and I looked on my right hand to the woman who sat beside me the stout blonde woman with strange eyes, thinking, she will know the way. This is her country. But I saw she was blind. She was blind. I knew by the hesitation of her body as she lifted it like something very large with separate intentions in another world. She took hold of me, and we entered the dark end of the car, and then she kissed me with life and death kisses, amid a great rush of air mingled with odors of metal and the slamming of doors. And out of her mouth, a stone passed into my open mouth. This is the stone of witness, she said, that stops every heart. Thereafter, I turned to the left hand and went down. In the sunlight, a spring snow was rising and falling on the plain, and the rails where the train had been were brimming with silver. I would have lingered in the light for the interest of the empty scene, but I was wearied out by the silence of life and death and the kisses of the fate, and I lay down among the leaves like a young soul, bewildered, beneath a sun that was as a stare of the finest eye. And then the life stopped in me, and the witness stone divided my throat. You've just heard Oren Eisenberg read The Life and Death Kisses by Alan Grossman. Oren, thank you. It's an extraordinary reading. It's an extraordinary poem. Yeah. I have, I have so many questions for you about it, but you've predicted my first, which is to ask you to say something about the poem's epigraph, which I suppose... Um, seems a bit like a teacherly gesture to to help 
you know, guide or orient a reader, um, say something about um, Ibn Obscuri for those who don't recognize um, the reference or who are rusty with their Latin. Um, yeah. Help help us with that epigraph, Orin. Well, yeah, if it is a teacherly gesture to to translate it or to situate it, um, it's because it's a teacherly gesture to have it there, right? So mm-hmm. an epigraph um, does a certain kind of pedagogical work of, right. of t- telling you you need to know something, um, if not mm-hmm. exactly telling you what it is that you need to know. Ibn Obscuri is... Um, uh, a Latin uh, phrase from mm-hmm. Virgil, um, uh, and in particular uh, from uh, the sixth book of the Aeneid, um, the the whole line from which it is drawn. It's a, a piece of a line. Ibant obscuri sola sub nocte per ombram. They walked in the darkness. That's the Ibant obscuri part. They walked mm-hmm. in the darkness of that night with shadows about them. Um, of that lonely night, sola sub nocte, um, para umbra, uh, with shadows around them. Um, so they walked in darkness, um, I guess, to 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 hive off the peace that um, that leads the poem. Um, and and for Virgil, this is um, this the the context here is of the the classic kind of epic trip to the underworld. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So so book six. Um, is uh, the book where uh, Aeneas, uh, with accompanied by um, the Sibyl of Cumae, um, a, yeah. a fate, a, a woman who is a, um, a seer who has witnessed uh, things that no mortal person could possibly know, um, accompanies him uh, to visit, uh, into the underworld to visit his father, um, who has died uh, in the aftermath of uh, their flight from from Troy? Um, right. Uh, and so, um, yes, the, this is uh, a poem that is prefaced by a, a, a line from Virgil uh, from the sixth book of the Aeneid, but it also, in a certain sense, reenacts um, in, in important ways hmm. the story of the of book six of the Aeneid. Um, that is, we find um, the, the speaker of the poem on a, on a vehicle for Virgil. It was Charon's boat, right? Um, yeah. uh, here it's a train uh, accompanied right. by a seer, by a woman um, who, uh, who is called a fate later in the poem. Right. Um, uh, and who has some, uh, knowledge greater than the knowledge uh, that that uh, he has right. Um, right? right so this is a poem that's very conscious of its tradition of its belatedness sure. within that tradition sure. of its situatedness sure. within that tradition right. yeah absolutely yeah and it, well it occurs to me also as you say so that um you know belatedness and tradition th- those ideas are already present for Virgil, you know, I mean, not to make mm. this a, an episode about uh, Virgil rather than about Grossman, but, you know, so Virgil is writing a kind of um, epic that is belated with respect to the, the, um, the story of the Iliad or um, um, that, that he's, uh, so, you know, if the Iliad tells the story of the Trojan War from a kind of Greek point of view, the Aeneid 
um, tells the story of the founding of Rome from the ashes of Troy, the sort of Trojan story, but, you know, it was written many years after the Odyssey, the Odyssey and the Iliad were um, conceived of or recorded, yeah. uh, if not quite written. And then, and then Virgil, of course, will show up again in the epic tradition as a guide to Dante through exactly. his own trip in the underworld. And so Grossman must be thinking of all, that, all of that tradition in a way and more besides. No Absolutely. And, and the, 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 the repetition of this story um, of the descent into an underworld, of the ability to speak to the dead and emerge with wisdom greater than you could have had by ordinary means Mm-hmm. Uh, is very much what the poem is wrestling with. And, and maybe another way to say that um, is to say that this is a vocational poem. That is, mm. it, it tells the story of how a person becomes a poet um, or how ah, this person yeah. became a poet. Um, lots of poets write vocational poems because they involve wrestling with some fundamental questions, um, maybe most centrally, what to make of a life that's given over or dedicated to making this kind of thing. Right. Um, right. So the, the word vocation comes from the Latin vocare to call. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of having a vocation, I, as opposed to a job, right. Or a pastime right. uh, sure. is that you are called to it. You're called to service right. by some power greater than yourself. And that calling confers on you an obligation. Yeah, um, and that's clearest when we use the word as we sometimes do to describe being called to the service of God in the priesthood. Uh-huh. Right? That's uh-huh. uh, that's a vocation. That's a vocation. Sometimes uh-huh. we talk about teaching as a vocation. In part, we mean that we're not doing it to make a lot of money because we don't. Um, but less cynically, right? We mean that we're we're called to represent a commitment to the idea that knowledge is good. Um, or uh-huh. that among the things that we transmit when we transmit knowledge um, is an account of what is good. Yeah. So is that is that sense um, of of vocation of being called or I mean, is, as I read the first lines of the of the poem, this this business of um, and 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 I, I suppose I'm skipping over the very first line, which maybe you want to say something about. So please please feel free to if if yeah. if you'd like, but. This business of out of the infinite unborn, one of the born who lived, and out of the number of all who have lived and died, one of those yet alive. It's it's as though he's, um, one gets the sense he's describing these um, ever narrower um, sets and um, somehow wondering at the fact that he has been elected uh, of um out of these the, the the sort of unlikeliness of his being called upon in this way it is is are you getting the sense of vocation present in those first lines absolutely and and i think what you're seeing and saying um is just how much contingency is involved uh, in the coming to pass of being able to speak uh, right. right. So I, I could have, uh, I could have never been born. Um, uh-huh. I could, having been born, have died. Right. Um, uh, not having died, I could be forced to s- speak or not speak, but but cry out in uh, in ways that are not 
comprehensible because in terrible pain, or uh, I could have to only discourse on the sources of my pain, right? That's the, right. Um, I suppose, the the language of the person who is enraged by the treachery of women is the person right, who can only right. complain about all, all of the uh, the pain that love has caused him, right? That's a whole genre um, yeah, yeah. of poetry that this is not. <laughs> okay, um, right. Uh, right, or um, the a kind of Job-like poetry of lamentation, right? The, the, the poet who is oppressed, subjected by the evil power of Jay and who can only speak about the, the sources of their subjection, right? So not just um, how unlikely it is to be able to speak, but how unlikely it is to be able to speak about anything other than right. um, your particular situation, which is usually understood as a kind of painful one. Uh, yeah, um, right. Well, on that note, it seems to... I, it seems to me that one of us not in the greatest pain um, does do the kind of um, uh, work that you were just describing, but it also seems to imply that he is after all in some pain. Yeah. <laughs> and and I we wonder, all. <laughs> yeah, well, well, are we, I don't know. I mean, I wonder what the kind of implied relation is there for you between pain and speech or pain and poetic speech. Um, it, it, can you say more about that, um, Oren? Well, um, sure. I think that pain is an imperative to speech. Um, we speak in order to communicate uh, our pain or uh, to communicate it en route to the possibility that someone could either help or in any event share um, in the uh, the experience of our pain and make us less isolated within it. Um, and there's a way in which for Grossman, um, singular embodiment, that is the, the, mm. the, the fact of being one person, um, uh, in one situation, the situation of your life, where you live in the state of X um, and the <laughs> land of lakes, um, yeah. might have uh, is is a kind of s- profound solitude um, because it is without meaning. Um, meaning is a collective enterprise, um, huh. and so the more fully. Uh, and singularly located you are, Mm -hmm. um, the less something like a possibility of understanding or sympathy is possible. Um, Mm -hmm. Pain is both an imperative to articulation, um, but it is also uh, something like the result of radical individuation. Um, And Mm -hmm. it is only the possibility of being with others um, that could make might not mean make pain go away because what on earth could, but it makes pain mean something. Right. Um, Right. There's a, there's pain. And then there's the pain in which your pain has no greater significance than itself. Um, And that meaning is a way of making pain not go away, but making it signify and therefore making it bearable because felt in the interest of something um, Uh suffered in the interest of something. Yeah. Oh, well, that's very moving. 
you know, um, as, as you were setting up the poem and, and describing ways we have of making sense of poems, and you referred to the conversation that um, I had with Stephanie Burt about the player piano, the Jarrell poem, and it seemed to me that you were trying to distinguish, I mean, you're saying that the, the poem used the phrases, um, asks you to take on in its reading a kind of experimental attitude, and later you used the phrase theoretical attitude, that mm. is what under what conditions would a person want to say these things or be able to say these things? But you just, you were distinguishing a kind of um, dramatistic version of that question from other versions of that question that might be asked. And because I was thinking, as I was reading this poem and preparing for this conversation, you know, the thought occurred to me and the word dream comes up in the poem, you know, one way to help, um, domesticate the poem or something, tame it and make it feel manageable would be to think, well, what we're getting is an account of a dream. Um, But it seems to me, I have a feeling you will think that that would be to diminish the poem in some important way or to underestimate the, the kind of um, the kind of utterance that it is. Um, and maybe, sorry, the reason I bring that up now is because in what you're saying about pain, you know, it seems so vitally important that, that pain be, um, these weren't precisely the words you used, but I think I'm getting at the same idea that pain be witnessed or, um, or acknowledged and made meaningful in kind of genuinely social relations, um, and a dream is not like that, <laughs> you know. You're, you know, unless you have some truly kind of uh, mystical account of what dream life is, you yeah. know, a dr- a dream is a kind of solitary endeavor. Yes. And um, in the epic tradition, a trip to the underworld is not that. It was not all a dream, right? right. Um. So say more, Oren, and feel free to to take us anywhere in the poem where you feel this issue comes up. But mm. say more about who the like. If this is a poem about vocation, and we hear the poem, the poet being sort of elected or providing an account of of his of his vocation, who are the other people in the poem? You know, or what is the what is the status of other persons in this poem? Yeah it's a it's a real question because um there's a sense i i take it that's what's driving the question is that there's a real sense in which there are no other persons in this poem right um right i mean there there is this woman um who uh, is sitting beside him uh, on the train um but it turns out yeah but it but it's going to turn out, sorry, did that? Um, uh, no, no, you're good. Yeah. But it's, it's going to turn out um, that she is not a, a person in the, the ordinary sense. Um, and there's a way in which the speaker is not a, a person in the ordinary sense, right? right. Um, so all of the, the marks of biography or of historical location yeah. Um, are rendered here in highly ironized or um, X'd out or yeah. um, uh, 
symbolized ways, right? So, you know, we know what the Middle Western state of X is, the land of lakes, it's Minnesota. Uh, we know that that's the state where Alan Grossman, the man, was born. Um, uh, but why not so, name it? But you know? why not name it, right? So there's, you know, there's, there's the possibility, oh, this is a, a Romana clay, right? All you have to do is decode this and then you'll be getting crucial uh, secret facts. But that's clearly not the right way to think about this, yeah. right? I mean, um, right. Uh, what does it mean that we only get the actual geographical place under its somewhat romanticized, symbolized name, the land of lakes? Yeah, yeah. Um, right? What does it mean that we only get another person um, as this fate, um, that we only get her physical embodiment as the mark of a kind of transpersonal knowledge, right? That is, you know, she has this heavy body, but the heaviness of her body is the mark of her belonging to another world um, mm-hmm. uh, rather than this one. Um, so, what, do we, what do we make of her honey blondness? Do you have yeah. thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, I, 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 it's one of those moments where you remember um, that you're dealing with an actual person, both mm-hmm. as a, a writer and um, that you yourself are trying to figure out what your livable relationship to this story could possibly be, right? So a dream you can appreciate someone's dream. You can decode someone's dream, mm-hmm. but you aren't really asked to take on someone's dream. Oh, right. Um, uh, and what distinguishes this from a dream, right? It is that it is offered um, by being a vocational poem. It's offered as an account of the reality of the world that is meant to apply to you too, um, even, hmm. uh, even though you're not in it. Um, right, so that's why um, I, I think it's taxing to read, right? Because you're being asked to to locate yourself, um, right. or to think about your the implications of the world that is intended by this poem um, for you, um, for right. your life, for your historical personhood. Right. Um, you know, Grossman is is really clear about why the call to poetry is terrifying. Um, and the reason for that is that you, you can't make your own meanings. You can't make the meaning of your own life, meaningfulness, um, or maybe especially, right. The meaningfulness of your individual experience is only available when you see it unfolding within some story or system of meanings that's larger than yourself and that you didn't make. Yeah. And it's on behalf or in the service of that system of meanings, that way of meaning making that the poet speaks, whether he wishes to or not. Right? So as much as we want poetry to push back at the boundaries of the known or the knowable, and so many of the poems I think that you have been talking about over many of the beautiful weeks of your podcast, oh, I yeah. do want to push back against those boundaries. Right. There's a part of even the most radically experimental poetry that is conservative that offers a brief for an account of the world, some account of the world that it did not author. Um, right. So it's in order to make individual experience comprehensible to another person or even to yourself, 
You have to re-see it or remake it as experience within some system of meaningful actions or events, right? That's why this is a reenactment of a certain kind of epic journey. Um, I see. So, right? so one of the ways in which this poem is enacting what you've just been describing is by allowing us to recognize it as participating in a kind of literary tradition that we alluded to when talking about the epigraph to the poem and Virgil's place and so forth. Can you help us see other places in the poem, Oren, where that, um, that, uh, that what you just described a moment ago is what is terrifying about being um, called upon in this way is like in the sense that meaning resides or, or depends upon, um, yeah. a, you know, a systems that, that exceed the personal. Yeah. Like where, um, where, where do you get that idea here specifically? So I, I think, I can I can point to some uh, the terror will will come um, yeah okay if, I, if I'm persuasive enough about it so yeah. one of the things that might not be totally obvious about the poem just from looking at it or even mm-hmm. from hearing it um, is the that the form of the poem is in hexameters um, mm-hmm. or something as close to hexameters as you can get while writing in non grotesque right um, so tell, t- tell our audience more about what hexameters. Yeah, are and what their place in the history of poetry is. Absolutely. Right. So the hexameter is a, a six foot line where a foot is a sequence of stressed, um, or relatively long and relatively short syllables, right? So the lines of this poem, if you count them, hover for the most part around somewhere between 14 and 17 syllables. And that's because they're divided into six feet, each of which has two or three syllables, right? So- uh-huh. Um, but one stressed syllable, right? Um, yeah. Right, in each right. foot. One accented right? syllable yeah. in each foot, right. Yeah. Right. So the hexameter is the meter of Greek and Latin epic of Homer in the Iliad and in the Odyssey and of Virgil in the Aeneid. Mm-hmm. Um, epic hexameters were made up of dactyls, which were long syllables followed by two short syllables. Yeah, yeah. Um, like infinite or obdurate, to choose Uh two remarkable words from this poem. Uh Um, Or if a foot wasn't a dactyl in an epic poem, it was a spondy, two long syllables um, next to each other, like blown down or strange Uh eyes. Uh Um, So you could write verse of great fluency and variety in Greek and Latin hexameters because those languages, or at least the literary versions of those languages, um, encourage thinking about syllables, about verse in quantitative terms. Uh, right, so each syllable took a certain amount of time. Yeah, um, a right. short syllable was half as long as a long one. So a dactyl, like a long and then two shorts, and a spondy, two longs in a row, just counted the same quantity. They just divided it up slightly differently. Right, two right. longs and one long and two shorts were the same quantity of time. English doesn't really work that way. Um, we tend to think about language not in terms of quantity, long and short, but in terms of quality, right. stressed and unstressed. Right, um, and more than that, right? Even when we're writing verse, we tend to think about stressed and unstressed in English, not as fixed qualities um, mm-hmm. imposed by a pattern or imposed by our metrical scheme, but as relative qualities, right? Determined in part by in part by the rules of pronunciation, in part by the word's position in the line, 
But maybe ultimately, and this is kind of where I, I was trying to get to, maybe ultimately by the particulars of what you want to say. Yeah. So by, the, you, by the sort of demands and conventions of speech, of idiomatic speech. Yeah. Exactly. So if you say unborn, for example, you you might stress the born part if you are contrasting it to some other state. Right. Un, undying because unborn. Right. Undying because unborn. But right. here, where you're contrasting being born to its opposite. Right, being unborn. Out of the infinite unborn, right. one of the born who lived, right. Right, you've got um, uh, the opposite way of stressing it. So, so why does any of this matter? Well, it matters yeah. because right, this is a poem that is, on the one hand, it matters because it's a poem that's thinking with or wrestling with the Aeneid in a particular moment in the Aeneid, right? Um, but it also matters because this is a, a poem about how it is that you could possibly articulate the significance of your own life, of your own experience, um, without subordinating it to some, some order, some system, some frame of value and of meaningfulness and hence value um, that you did not author. In order to be recognizable, in order to be audible, in order to speak at all, we submit yeah. ourselves to rules that we did not make. They might be and, rules of meter. Yeah, yeah. They might be rules of grammar. Um, they are rules of civilization. Um, to appear in the world, to appear in history in a meaningful way um, means to rearticulate yourself, the things that you feel might matter most about you, in languages that other people can recognize. That's yeah. both the way in which we can come to care about our own experience and which right. others can come to care about our experiences. Um, right. uh, and so it is a profoundly uh, humanizing thing to do, right? To give voice to your pain, to give voice to your experience. But it is also, and this is the terrifying part, a kind of death because you have to remake yourself in terms that you didn't author. Um, you have to, in order to count, um, you have to rewrite yourself um, as belonging to the order of things that count. So I, I, I'm going to um, state a position naively because I think I know what you'll say, but I think, I think it'll be important for our audience to hear it. Yeah. There's nothing that compels me to write a poem in hexameters, right? Correct. And I, so I hope the, not. Yeah, right. I mean, I've never done it. <laughs> right. So, well, maybe they fact, just haven't compelled you I mean, yet. Maybe it's, maybe it's just worth pointing out that it's it seems to have become conventional in English for reasons that are maybe too not relevant enough to get into here f for poets who want to write epic in English to do so in pentameter rather than hexameter. It's become yes. the sort of English approximation of hexameter. Yes, so it's when, like, when, uh, yeah. when Seamus Heaney translates book six of the, uh, of the Aeneid, which he did I think it was the last thing he published. Uh -huh. uh, it was actually published posthumously. It's in um, it's in pentameters. Sure, or I mean, when John Milton writes Paradise Lost. <laughs> but anyway, okay. So um, yes. Um, so so sorry. The naive point, which which I think you'll have something useful um, to to tell me about, is 
is, um, you know, I might object to to what you've said about the the kind of compulsion that I'm under to conform to a system not of my making if I yeah. want to be legible by saying, well, I, I don't have to speak in the kind of formal tradition that you're um, that you're describing here. Grossman is following. Um, so so in what sense am I um, is my ability to to um, express my pain, if that's what I want to do, or to ask for recognition in one way or another, um, contingent upon my submission to some system not of my making. Yeah. Um, I think the maybe the important word that I want to pick out of what you just said is some system. Right. Um, right. It does not, in other words, have to be um, hexameters, one yeah. hopes. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's got to be something. Legibility um, to another is only legibility um, if it is embraced or recognizable by another. Um, so, I mean, here's an example, right? I think you you had um, you had pointed to the first line, or at least you had sort of f- um, suggested that I might point to the, to yeah, the yeah. first line um, of this poem. Uh, which is also a quotation, or maybe even more directly. This is the uh, the line in the poem that is actually literally a quotation. Mm-hmm. Um, the chroniclers ceased; they ceased until I, I arose. But it's not a quotation from Virgil. Um, mm-hmm. It's a quotation from a 16th century Jewish historiographer named um, Joseph Cohen, um, who wrote a book um, that was meant to be a a sort of history of the world written in Hebrew. Um, uh, this is the, the preface to the book in which he announces himself as the inheritor of the task of chronicling from the biblical chronicles, um, right? That there, there, were, there have been no chronicles until now. I'm picking up um, the thread. Um, and the, that story, the story that he told began with the fall of Rome, that is to say, began with the story that is, that with the end of the story that is begun right. um, in the book six of the Aeneid, which forecasts the founding of Rome. Um, right, from the fall of Troy. From yeah. the fall of Troy, right? So, so what's the point? The point is that maybe there's a Jewish tradition of valuing that isn't uh, stuck inside this endless fall and rebuilding and fall again, um, a way of articulating value that is not um, so wrapped up in violence. Um, this poem wants to imagine, right? Wants to propose um, that, uh, right? We have, you know, this, you've, you've pointed us to the sequence in which we move from Homer to Virgil, then to Dante, right? To the mm-hmm. move inside the Christian, st- we, we move inside sure. the Christian story. Um, and it tells the same story over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. Is there another story? Um, mm-hmm. Is there another chronicle? Um, the, 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 the poem sort of wants to find or wants to imagine or begins by wishing for mm-hmm. an alternate language in which to lodge my being, my value, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not um, a part of this Christian story. Um, I'm a Jew um, uh-huh. in history, um, right? So these faces outside the train, these faces that look like leaves, um, 
suddenly one realizes, right, start to look like the kinds of faces that one sees through the windows of the trains that are on their way to the death camps, um, uh, right? So the, 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 the languages of value, the ways of articulating personhood that the West has produced have produced for this kind of person, nothing but suffering, nothing but pain, nothing but exclusion, nothing but extinction. Is there yeah. another way? The, uh, it, yeah, go on, please. Um, but it is this poem's view, and it was, I think, Alan Grossman's view, that, that there was no other way. Um, that this quotation, um, the chroniclers ceased, they ceased until I rose, that, that longs for another language of value, another way of articulating identity, right. another way of placing a value on experience that might not result in violence is itself a quotation um, from judges in which the prophet Deborah right, helped to lead the Israelites in battle against the Canaanites in founding Israel as a kind of uh -huh. militant nation. And she uh -huh. says, the inhabitants of the villages ceased. They ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose. Ah. I arose a mother in Israel. Uh -huh. Right. So that story is also a story of intercivilizational violence. It's the story mm -hmm. of the founding of a kind of person through a primordial act of violence in which a certain language of value is possible. The recognition of one fellow uh, to another in which a certain articulation of the value of the world is possible. This is what holiness is. This is what the story of life is, this is the direction a life ought to take, this is what is good. But those acts of value making are always um, mounted on foundational exclusions. There is no other way to make value, to make meaning um, that does not produce for itself a limit, that does not produce for itself an outside. Hmm. Um, and it is the vocation of the poet to speak on behalf of some order of value, ideally incrementally better, um, right? To, to push back against the ones that are unsatisfactory and that produce pain and that produce violence and that produce damage. But in fact, there's no other way to do it. Um, right. It's it, that pain and that violence and that damage can be deferred or they can be relocated or they can be hopefully pushed ever outward, but never dispensed with because of the demands of closure, um, right? Uh -huh. Because the imagination stops somewhere. Um, uh -huh. The point at which you encounter something that you don't know how to value or that you cannot recognize as a person or that you cannot hear as a voice um, or that you cannot um, love. So what? So is is that what's happening, Orin, in the encounter that seems to be at the center of this poem, between the speaker, and I'll use that term advisedly, since maybe we're not to think of this really in dramatic terms, but nevertheless, the poet, and this honey blonde woman who at first seems to be just an ordinary woman and then quickly, you know, but a little strange and then seems soon enough to be anything but ordinary and 
and at the center of the, I mean, it's not, it's not maybe it's, it's past the midpoint of the poem, but in, in, in a sense of um, the poem structure, it seems to me in some ways to be the center of the poem. Yeah. It's what gives the poem its title. Um, she took hold of me and we entered the dark end of the car and then she kissed me with life and death kisses amid a great rush of air mingled with odors of metal and the slamming doors and out of her mouth, a stone passed into my open mouth. Mm. Uh, can you help us make sense of that? Um, maybe making sense is, is, is a little too much to ask, but can you help us uh, think about or take in those lines in the context of the um, the the recognition that you were just explaining a moment ago as Grossman's kind of concession to what one has to do in order to be meaningful? Like what? what anyway, anyway, I yeah. want to know what is going on in the encounter between the poet and this woman. Um, what are the life and death kisses? What kind of um, um, interpersonal encounter are um, it, are those kisses performing or enacting? Yeah. Um, and and what of the stone that passes from one mouth into the other? So right, that's a lot. Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> So remember, right, that it turns out um, that this woman is blind. Um, right. And blindness in poetic terms, right? Homer was also blind. Um, sure. Uh, blindness is the mark of someone who can see more than an empirical person can see, can know more than a historical person can know. Um. Uh, and and that entails or involves a certain kind of death because it involves an indifference to one's own life, um, right? An mm. indifference to one's own perspective in being able to move beyond it, um, in able to being able to situate your life, your experience in some larger story, means that you can't care about your own life and experience in the same way as the, the person who is bound to it, who owns it, who's restricted to it, um, you become instead the person whose job it is to speak the big picture. Um, uh, that's both a, a form of eloquence and a form of, of uh, muteness, right? This stone that's in your mouth is both the basis of your articulation, the thing that mm. makes that's empowering, um, mm-hmm. but there's also a way in which as a, literally, if you had a stone in your mouth, you wouldn't be able to speak at all. You wouldn't be able to say what you thought, right. um, right. All you'd be able to do is to, is to offer the stone, um, right. right? That kind of bedrock of what is, um, yeah. why it's an erotic encounter. Um, well, I, th- you know, if you think about Rilke, I guess, right. Every angel is terrifying. Um, and if one of them he says, were to press me against its heart, I would be consumed in that overwhelming existence. I would be consumed in that overwhelming being, right? There's a, um, a way in which in order to 
really enter the vocation of the poet again um, is to cease to be, at least in the kind of history of poetic utterance, it's to cease to be a historical person. It's to become uh-huh. a trans-historical person. It's to become a uh-huh. speaker who can say more than you know. Yeah. Um, you often need help to do that, right? That's why you invoke the muses. Um, uh, but, but here the muse or something like a muse um, or a sibyl or a wisdom figure is passing on that empowerment to you. Right. Um, uh, and so that you can do it without the invocation so that you can do it without help so that you can do it on your own, but in order, but to do that is to lie down and die. Um, right. And then rise up again as a different kind of speaker, as a speaker who can say not what Sylvia Plath wants to say, not what Robert Lowell wants to say about, you know, this is what it is to be me. This is what it is to be a person like me. This is what it is to, to have my historical being um, and my gender and my hmm. located class and my mm-hmm. uh, particular genealogy and my mother and father and to suffer mm-hmm. um, in the particular way that only I suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be um, someone who is marked by the systems of value that all that make all of those things count. Well, so that maybe the the self that gets made in the poem is is no longer the one that made the poem, and is um, and its existence somehow depends upon the extinction of the one who did the making. That I mean, yes. uh, sorry, the 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 the. Um, the poet that I'm thinking about, as you describe this, is one that we've not named yet, but is Eliot, um, where who doesn't invoke the muse, but who does seem to, you know, goes on and on. And now we've we have newly uncovered evidence that suggests that maybe he's being somewhat disingenuous about the, uh, as, as which is of course we always knew he was, but uh, uh, at some level, but uh, but yeah. uh, um, that the poet um, that what poetry is is or that what poetry requires is the extinction of um the personality, personality of yeah, the poet exactly right? um, um and, and i don't yeah. know what grossman would have thought of Eliot or of that strand of modernism in particular it's not the one that you've named in in naming yates but um but nevertheless it, it's what comes to mind for me where where what replaces the muse is a kind of sense that this does seem in the spirit of the poem a, a kind of uh sense of literary and cultural tradition um, right. So, so Eliot speech. Yeah. Yeah. So for Eliot, that was, that was what one ought to do, right? One mm-hmm. ought to um, extinguish oneself. Uh, so you, you are not supposed to aspire to originality. You're supposed mm-hmm. to aspire to devoutness, mm-hmm. um, right? And a poet that, uh, and uh, uh, what you should aspire to be what he called um, to write, to write what he called a minor poetry. Um, right. Minor poetry is minor because it is subordinate to doctrine, um, right? Because it because it unabashedly and unconflictedly articulates ultimately um, Anglican theology. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And so um, Grossman is here d- doing something like describing the logic that um, 
that someone like Eliot is in the grips of, right? He saw meaningful utterance, valuable utterance as being utterance that is completely circumscribed by, bound to a particular way of understanding what good is, what the human story ought to look like, how it's mm-hmm. going to end in the end, right? Where mm-hmm. what what we're all on our way to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for Grossman, right, that is just one instance of a recurrent story, the same story that is produced by, say, Virgil in in celebrating the founding of, of Rome. The same story, it turns out, much against his will, that was produced by the Jewish prophets um, in the establishment mm-hmm. of Israel. Is there another story, right? Is there a way of producing an orient, a meaningful orientation um, to a life that doesn't reproduce forms of exclusion of other kinds of lives that that particular set of values doesn't know how to value um, without reproduce and the violence that then follows from those exclusions. Mm. Um, the answer that Grossman came to was no, there is no other way. Um, so if the answer is no, yes, um, then I guess what I want to know and what I wonder how as this poem moves towards its conclusion, um, how Grossman um, lives in the recognition of that answer as being no, right? Um, yeah. Um, he's 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 taken this um, gift, if that's the right word for it, as though um, you know, without any choice, out of her mouth a stone passed into my into my open mouth. This is the stone of witness, she said, that stops every heart, and he moves on. The eye moves on here from that point. So um, talk to us about what seems to you to be distinctive, uh, Oren, about the way um, we've talked so much about Grossman as teacher, but the way Grossman, Grossman's eye here receives this lesson, as yeah. it were. You know, a few minutes ago, um, you, you asked um, about... The, we, we were talking about the voice. We were talking about the meter um, yeah. in this poem. And we were talking also about the indices of uh, historical life. You know, again, the, mm-hmm. the, the ways in which biographical facts are things that did happen or that seem like they could be the kinds of things that might happen to you or me or the place, mm-hmm. kinds of places that you and I have been mm-hmm. in Middle Western states on the Western unbuilt limb of the central city we've seen the factories and the i've been to minnesota (laughs) and the nursing homes right um right so what is the status of 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 those facts the facts to which our lives adhere um and that Mm -hmm. give us um the texture of our own being um and all of that's in here um Mm -hmm. right it's in here in strangely marked ways it's in here in a way in transformed ways help us um, see it help us see it um, as the poem ends or well so um 
you know, as I, you know, the, the things that I'm pointing to here, right, the Middle Western state of X, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? we can know, we can know what the X is, but it has to be X'd. Um, we can know what the land of lakes is, but it has to be symbolized, turned mm-hmm. into a kind of value bearing term, but a funny one, right? I mean, there is real, that's, that's a joke on some level. Yeah. Um, uh, and so is the fact that, you know, you sit, you find your body on this obdurate, bright bench of varnished rattan, right? There's, there are moments in this poem that are obdurate, um, that, that are hard to transform into elevated forms of value, whose um, interest, whose power, whose uh, appeal seems to be in their empirical factuality, right? The fact that when you are sitting on a train and it's on a curve, right? Mm-hmm. You can feel your body lean yeah. um, as it travels mm-hmm. through space. Mm-hmm. So there are ways in which this poem speaks of the life that you and I lead, that is on the scale that you and I lead it, mm-hmm. speaks about them in the aftermath of not really knowing how to uh, value yeah. those things looks right. back as if from a height um, on the life that we once all led, the individual life that we once all led, um, through which it's through which language it's still discernible. Um, right. So this is um, what I want to call or want to understand in the language of the poem um, as speaking with a divided throat. Yeah. As speaking on the one hand with a human throat, right? The kind yes. of throat that you and I are using right now yeah. um, to talk right. about our own lives, to talk about the fact that I knew this person and loved this yeah. person right? Um, and had a relationship with this person in my own life. Um, and to talk about the fact that I found it ennobling and transformative and that it has changed my orientation to what a life is to know him. Yeah. Um, and that those two things are of different orders, but that somehow I speak both of them at the same time. Yes. Um, um, and and re, that that's re, what this, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, well, sorry, no. I mean, I, I, I really want to hear what you were about to say, but I think you'll still have a chance to say it if I ask you to read the final lines of the yeah. poem for us again one time or begin wherever you like, Orrin. But, yeah. you know, I... I you you refer to that divided throat. That's the image the poem ends on, and I want to. Um, I'm I'm so moved, yeah, by the sense of right. There's the man you knew, and there's the poet or something that is implied by that seems to have created the the um, text we've been um, thinking about for the last hour or so. And somehow they're the same person, yeah. and yet they seem not to be. Um, I suppose that might be one thing that is gestured towards with the idea of the divided throat. But I want for you to read those lines again, since it's been so long since we've heard the poem, Sure. Um, just so that those lines are fresh, and then to say what, what it is you'd like to say about the idea of the divided throat at the end. So I'll read a, just a chunk of this last stanza, um, or first paragraph, in, in the sunlight. A spring snow was rising and falling on the plain, and the rails where the train had been were brimming with silver. I would have lingered in the light for the interest of the empty scene, 
but I was wearied out by the silence of life and death and the kisses of the fate. And I lay down among the leaves, like a young soul bewildered, beneath a sun that was as a stare of the finest eye. And then the life stopped in me, and the witness stone divided my throat. That image of the rails where the train had been brimming with silver, yeah. um, for me, cuts in both of those directions, right? That silver is real. We've seen it. Um, the, the way in which, depending on where you stand, some metal train rail yeah. might produce in you, um, a, produce for you, a sensation that seems like it was intended only for you it because right. it, it depends entirely on your life having brought you to that moment to standing in that particular place in relation to the sun that's an effect of your life that's an effect of the light yeah and i want to i want to just say very quickly too like the the thought of the the train that must move along the rails right and yeah. the vision one has of the rails it, it it sounds to me not unlike the way we've been describing say hexameter or something else right for a, sure a kind yeah. of scheme that must be followed in order for you know travel to do its job but Absolutely. okay right yeah. so so it means that on the one hand silver is that thing that we recognize that um, that effect that we recognize right so it's an effect that is as it were intended for you and only for you because um mm. you it, it came to you at that moment based entirely on where you stood and where you've been. Right. And silver is a common currency that is mm -hmm. valuable, or if it is valuable, um, not experientially, not because of what it means in my life, but mm -hmm. because we all accept it, um, mm -hmm. uh, because it is imprinted by the language of value um, mm -hmm. that we did not make. Um, right. So we don't get to determine the value of our silver. Right. Um, it's formalized and, in our political arrangements. And exactly. Our, right, yeah, and that right. those political arrangements are, are on the one hand, the basis upon which you and I can recognize and credit one another. And mm -hmm. on the other hand, they are the source of tremendous acts of exclusion and violence, both at the same time, mm -hmm. life and death kisses. Mm -hmm. um, one and the same. Um, and that this, poem speaks both things at once. It speaks both of a person from the perspective of a person who is real, mm. um, but who has, in a certain sense, recognized the demand to sacrifice his reality in the interest of his significance, um, or in the interest of the huh. ability to articulate significance for others. Is, but is that sacrifice total? Or does the does the fact that the throat is divided suggest that something is left over? I don't know. Yes. Well, um, it's why there's more than one poem, uh, right? I mean, <laughs> oh right. Uh, right yeah. to, to, uh, it's why, uh, on some level, Grossman was not a writer of an epic, which aspires to be the the to, the total poem, yeah. Uh, once and for all, to tell you what is valuable um, and in the interest of what it speaks, um, but to have to to feel empowered to to feel it is necessary to redo, to rearticulate um, one's life over and over again because there is something that is unaccounted for 
because there is something residual, because there's something that remains, because there's something about your own experience that is not exhausted um, by the stories that we have for crediting experience. Um, that, that, that's, that's beautifully said. Um, to have a, a, a poem tell us in its final line, and then the life stopped in me. Yeah. Um, I mean, something strange must be being said there because of, you know, well, where is this voice coming from if the life has stopped in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think you've given us just now an account of how that might be. Um, um, the very last words of the poem and the witness stone divided my throat, perhaps point a way out. I like what you said a moment ago about how, well, you you know, you don't just write one poem. And, and of course, it also seems to me moving all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, um, you don't just write poems, but you, you know, eat hamburgers with your students <laughs> yeah. and, um, and um, pour tremendous amounts of salt on those hamburgers, you know, um, that is, there seems to be a life outside of the poems, even as the poems themselves are making these claims that s- seem to come from this. I don't know, terror-inducing, totalizing kind of view. Um, and he was—he is a figure for me of someone who, again, is both um, real, a part of my life, and someone who is larger than life um, yeah. uh, and um, part of the story of what makes my life significant, um, what yeah. makes it meaningful. Um and I, how to reconcile those two things, how to reconcile the, the way in which the person who gave you orientations to the meaningful was also a person like you um, right. uh, is hard um, and necessary and, um, and compelling. Uh, and I think it is mm-hmm. uh, part of what uh, drove me to try to present this poem to other people, um, right. To, to think about that experience. Well, I was going to say not to, not to be too self-congratulatory about it or anything, but uh, you know, I like to think that what you've done is to make some of that available as an experience to other people, um, in, in talking about the poem and in, and in sharing your own, um, brilliant thoughts about it with us. Orin Eisenberg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for sharing um the poem and for sharing um two ways of thinking about this the person who wrote it um with us uh i i really do appreciate it and i'm going to be um carrying it with me um once this conversation is through so thank you again for coming on thank you and thank you listeners um please uh do uh, follow the podcast. Um, we'll have more episodes for you soon. And um, it's been a real pleasure um, to get to have these conversations. I hope that pleasure um, is there for you as well. Take care, everyone.